Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. So Father, we want to once again just acknowledge your faithfulness right now. Thank you, Lord God, for the blessing of your, your word. We don't take it lightly, Lord God. The, the, the scriptures that we have before us, we recognize their inerrancy. We recognize their authority. Lord God, to give us all that we need for life, for godliness, as we have a knowledge of you in the scriptures. Lord, we also recognize our dependency on the Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, to help us to discern spiritual things as we look to the pages of the scriptures. So Spirit, be our guide tonight. Be our teacher once again, as you've been so faithful to direct us. Lord, we thank you for the book of Genesis. It's been an amazing journey, and we thank you for all that we have learned and the ways in which you've grown our faith uh, as we look at this book. So as we finish it tonight, Lord, bless our time together. Uh, We love you, and we give you this time. We give you our attention. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we do. We finish our Genesis series. Genesis means beginnings. Genesis, the word means origins. And we've had the privilege, really, of studying the beginning of everything. We've, we've seen the beginning of the world, of creation. We've seen the beginning of mankind, as God made Adam and Eve and then began to multiply them. We've seen the beginning of God's history with man, recorded in all these ways. And it's been such an amazing thing as we've looked at this history with mankind to see how God interacts. You learn a lot about God's character throughout the book of Genesis, as you see how he responds to things and how he interacts with mankind. We've learned about his creation. We've learned about the way he originally intended things to be. Man, Genesis is so significant because if you want to know what, what life is supposed to look like, you can look to Genesis to see how it was originally made. And I don't know if you realize this, but that's how Jesus viewed Genesis. When Jesus wanted to teach you what marriage should look like, He'd say things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you, and he says, in the beginning it was not so. In the beginning, this is what it was intended to look like. We get this from Genesis, from studying this book. It's been amazing. Now, Genesis is also the most significant book in the entire Bible. You're like, I don't know, but I think John, maybe your Romans, Sean, come on, really, the most significant? Yes, Because without Genesis, our Christianity has all kinds of holes in it. There's no context provided without the book of Genesis. Genesis provides the foundation and framework for the Judeo-Christian worldview and for the Christian faith. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but it is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Genesis is so significant. It It gives us what we need to understand the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. Genesis is paramount in understanding the gospel message, sin, salvation, the coming Savior. If you don't have Genesis, none of that really makes a lot of sense. So it's, been, it's just been incredible going through this. And as we've talked about, Genesis is also a book of multiplication. This book, or this word multiply in the Hebrew pops up 30 times throughout Genesis. And the majority of the times it shows up, it's talking about multiplying population, growing and multiplying on the earth, being fruitful and multiplying. 
And God tells us, He says, hey, be fruitful and be multiply and, and multiply on the earth. God also promises, I will make you fruitful and I will multiply you. This current theme, but we've, we've looked at this theme throughout the book of Genesis with the big picture in mind. And that is that God desires us to multiply on the earth, not just to have life on earth, but so that we would have life in heaven. God wants as many people as possible to populate heaven. It, it looks something like this. Okay, We see this through Genesis. Mankind multiplied so that God could separate a chosen people, the Jews. And we saw that in Genesis when he called out Abraham. The Jews then multiplied so that one day the Messiah could come through them, and Jesus came. Jesus then multiplied himself by giving his Holy Spirit to his followers. His his followers then multiplied themselves through discipleship, which is what we now do in the church age, which multiplies the population of heaven. And that's why we call this series Multiplied. And as we wrap it up, ending with that idea. Now, for those of you who have been on this journey through Genesis with us, my hope and prayer is that as we've spent this time in Genesis, that you would really feel like you have a stronger foundation uh, for the faith, a a greater understanding of the gospel message, really a greater understanding of your faith as a Christian, that it would be founded on truth and history as we wrap things up in Genesis. So I've, I've really enjoyed going through this book. I've grown so much as a pastor, as a teacher, as a Christ follower by diving into this text, by diving into these chapters. Now, last week, we saw Jacob, the patriarch, pass away. He was prophesying over his sons. He uh, blessed them. And then it says he drew his feet up in his bed and he breathed his last. And so that's where we pick it up right now with the burial of Jacob. Verse 1. It says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him. And kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. You know, in case you like wanted to embalm a family member or a little DIY embalming project on the side, right? Forty days, that's what you need. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now, a good way to measure the significance of an individual's life is to see how others feel when they die. Because people mourn greatly when someone is greatly loved. They do. When your life has impact, your passing will have impact. And it will touch hearts as you enter into eternity. King Herod the Great, the king when Jesus was a baby and had all the babies slaughtered, he wasn't loved and he knew it. He came up with his plan, and he said, take important men and kill them during my hour of death so that there would be mourning in the land. Pretty sick, right? Now, Jacob didn't have to do that because Jacob was a man who truly was loved, and people mourned greatly over him. The Egyptians even came to know Jacob throughout the 17 years of him living there, and the Egyptians mourned over the death of this amazing man of God. But more importantly, he was truly loved by those who knew him best. He was truly loved by his family, and it's seen in the way that they mourn as well, in their grief. I don't know if you've lost a loved one. I don't know if you've experienced deep levels of grief. It's not fun. 
it hurts. It really is a difficult thing to, to endure. But people have said about regarding pain, it, pain is good because it tells you that your body is still alive. And in a sense, grief is similar. Grief is. And that as you grieve, it's not fun, but it's good because it tells you that your love for that individual is real and is alive. We like to say at memorials that we, we grieve deeply when we love deeply. And it hurts. It's a difficult thing. And it's not a pleasant thing to go through. But guys, realize grief should be counted as an honor. It should be an honor to weep over someone you love. And it honors that individual who has passed. So Joseph demonstrates this love for his dad as he mourns. Verse 4. It says, And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I now have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, and he said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. The Egyptian elders all went to honor Jacob. It reminded me of Billy Graham's memorial service. Billy Graham got full military honors when he died. Pretty amazing. Typical civilians don't get that kind of honor, but Billy Graham did. So that's kind of how the Egyptians are honoring him. All the the servants of Pharaoh's household who knew Jacob and all the elders of of Egypt all went along with the family of Israel. Uh, Verse 8 Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, that place was named Abel Mizraim, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. Now, I don't believe there's another burial, death and burial, that's recorded to such detail in the Scriptures. But I think it says something of the significance of the patriarch Jacob here. So they obey him. He says, hey, take my body, bury me in the promised land. Bury me with Abraham and Isaac and their wives and with Leah. And they do. They obey him. But Joseph had to get permission to leave Egypt. Right? He's an important man. You can't have this large family just up and leave when they're having to do their job. So he gets permission from Pharaoh to go back to the land of Canaan to bury his father. Now, if only Moses' Pharaoh was that nice, right? In about 400 years, it's going to take a whole lot more than asking to leave and go back to the promised land. But as this amazing entourage came in of Egyptians and Israelites, 
the Canaanites took notice to the degree that they renamed that place. Now, you better believe that the people who knew Abraham and the Israelites, they saw these Egyptians in this giant entourage going to the cave of Machpelah. I highly doubt any of them was like, this is Abraham's family. They're like, this can't, this can't be that Abraham, that sojourner's family. There's no way that they would have grown to such size and such notoriety. But you see what God did. Like they, the, the Canaanites had no idea who it was, but it was the Israelites. It was those pesky sojourners that was going from town to town, area to area. This giant entourage, God has turned them into this, this people group with such notoriety. When patriarchs in a family, if you look at a family, you have your patriarchs, your matriarchs, your grandmas, your grandpas, great-grandmas, maybe great-grandpas. When these guys are around, they have a way of uniting the family, especially if they can cook really well, right? If they're good cooks, people typically gather around the patriarch. They gather around the matriarch. But when, when they pass away, there's issues that can, that can arise, tensions that were suppressed for their sakes, can sometimes surface in the relationships. You know, you tried to keep peace and maybe you had peace in the family while grandpa was around. But now that he's gone, there's not grandpa there to hold everyone together anymore. And so Joseph's brothers are worried that this is going to happen. And so they address Joseph here in verse 14. It says, After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. And when Joseph saw uh, that their father was dead, I'm sorry, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. Like, they were so afraid they didn't even want to go to Joseph personally. They're like, hey, call that message boy and we'll send him in case Joseph's really mad and heads start flying. Tell him, your father gave this command before he died. Saying to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. So they sent the message boy in there and they're like, is he alive still? Okay, we can go in. Right? They go in and they fall before Joseph and Joseph's like weeping. He's broken because they've misunderstood his demonstration of love and forgiveness. They haven't, they haven't realized it. Now, we don't know if Jacob really commanded this for Joseph. I Personally, I don't think it's likely. Wouldn't, wouldn't Jacob just tell him? Like on, even on his deathbed, hey, make sure you take it easy on your brothers, okay? I know they did that whole thing about like t- attempted murder and throwing you into the pit. Hey, but let bygones be bygones. You know what I mean? Like, I think he would have had that conversation and he never did. So ch- I think chances are they are using Jacob's authority behind their request for forgiveness. You know, do it for dad's sake kind of a thing. My kids do the same thing. I'll hear them in the other room. Dad said you have to share. I'm like, hey... I did, don't call me into this mess. I didn't say anything, right? I'm not. Don't bring me in the middle of that. But we do know Jake, J- Joseph had forgiven them. Joseph forgave them to the point of reconciling and providing for them. He has demonstrated 
forgiveness emotionally, verbally, and in action. And this goes to show, guys, that forgiveness can be shown to somebody, but that doesn't mean someone feels forgiven. You can, you can exercise forgiveness. In fact, you have to as a Christian. You are commanded to forgive even as you are forgiven. But that doesn't mean the other party will feel cleansed, will feel forgiven. And I think the main reason for this is because people will continue to have a guilty conscience until they seek God for forgiveness. People will carry their guilty conscience around even if they feel like they've made right with an individual because God is ultimately the one that we sin against. And God desires for those who have not been right with, made right with Him, He desires them to be convicted. In fact, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. He wants people to be sensitive of the fact that they're not reconciled to God. King David understood this. You remember when King David committed adultery with Bathsheba? Well, as he was processing that, he wrote a psalm, Psalm 51. And in that psalm, he says to the Lord, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. David acknowledged that it was God chiefly that he sinned against. Now, he did what he could to make restitution with Bathsheba. He took her in and took care of her, took care of the children that she, that she had. Um, but ultimately, he knew he had to make amends with God. If he was going to have his conscience cleansed, he had to go to the Lord, the one who made the command, don't commit adultery, the one who made the command, do not murder, do not sell your brother into slavery or throw him into a pit and sit down and eat your lunch and talk about how you're going to make money off of him, right? That's what these guys did. Do not do those things. These, these are commands of God. And when you break a commandment, you sin against God. And so David understood this. The brothers perhaps have not done business with the Lord. And I think that there are instances where we could do a better job at helping others feel forgiven. Someone might not feel forgiven because you're like, uh, yeah, yeah, I forgive you, whatever. And you give them the cold shoulder, they might not really feel forgiven. So sometimes maybe we just need to make a better effort like Joseph did in affirming that, hey, we have moved on, we forgive you. But ultimately, it's God who cleanses the conscience. And remember this, guys, a guilty conscience will continue to have an expectation of judgment. We saw before with the brothers and their guilty conscience that a guilty conscience sees every difficulty as a punishment for sin because you haven't dealt with that sin. And as Hebrews 10 tells us, there's an expectation of fiery indignation for the wicked, for, for those who have not made right with Jesus Christ uh, through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You dig down deep in your soul and think about your eternity and all that's there is the expectation of judgment. And we must get right with God. Just as the brothers, they had to get right with the Lord. Joseph demonstrated forgiveness to them. He really did. Joseph replies to them though, verse 19. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? He says, hey, don't be afraid of me. Am, am I in the place of God? Don't, don't fear me as though I'm your judge. I'm not your judge. That's God's job. Now, Joseph, he had the authority to judge. He was the ruler of the land. He could have enacted judgment on these guys. He was their victim. 
decades prior, so he had motive to enact judgment on them, but he chose not to. He chose not to. He desired to love. He desired to reconcile. Joseph exhibits here this biblical principle that we see throughout the Scriptures and that is spelled out for us in Romans chapter 12. I'll read it to you. It says in verse 17, Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Vengeance isn't really honorable, is it? You watch like those vengeance movies. There's like taken one, two, three. I think they made like eight of them. All these vengeance movies. But it's not really an honorable thing to turn around and act like the evil that the other person had committed. He said, do what is honorable, it says in Romans. Verse 18, he says, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Or as other translations say, give place, give room for the wrath of God. Uh, there's a proverb that talks about how if you're, mad, if you're glad at your enemy's calamity, or if, if you do this and you enact vengeance, God will withdraw his hand on your enemy. He'll relent. So like if you, if you want God to get your enemy, maybe, maybe you struggle with bitterness and you're like, God, get him. Don't be mad at that person. Don't be angry. Withdraw. Make room for God to get his hands in there and to do his work. That's what he's saying. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Guys, the reality is, and and, and this wasn't Joseph's heart. Joseph wasn't like, oh, I'm not going to judge you. (laughs) Get him, Lord. Go. You're going to get him. You 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 boys better wait. That wasn't necessarily his heart. His heart was of love towards his brothers. He just wanted a healthy relationship with them. And something we need to understand when we're tempted to avenge ourselves, when we're tempted to turn around and give that person back what they deserve, a taste of their own medicine and what they deserve, Think twice about that because you are entering into a field where you you will be brought into judgment. Reason being is only God can judge perfectly. You know why? Because only God is completely omniscient. God knows the circumstances of an offense inside and out, every detail of that offense. He knows it all. Beyond that, God knows that individual's heart and motives and the circumstances surrounding that person's motives. Therefore, God is the only one who can perfectly take an offense and perfectly judge it and bring about perfect judgment. We cannot. You might be a fair individual, a just person, but as fair as you think you are, as much as you think you know about the circumstances when that person offended you or when you watch someone else get offended, you don't have full knowledge and full understanding and you are not equipped to enact vengeance. Now, there are people in offices of judgment that God appoints, we have the, the U.S. Supreme Court, who it's their job to make decisions, pray for them, pray for them to make right and just decisions. But as an individual, you do not have the ability, the qualification to avenge yourself on somebody else. Joseph understood this. Now, as Christians, we're called to make judgments and examine the fruit of other people for sure. But again, we're not qualified to repay evil. And Joseph knew this. So he says, hey, don't worry about me. I'm not in the place of God. Don't don't think that way about me, guys. Hey, everyone. Pastor Sean here. 
You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the Young Adults Ministry of Calvary Tucson. Our hope is that through this ministry, your heart would be ignited to live boldly for Christ. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we want to invite you out to join us in person. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway and Camino Seco. We hope to see you there. God bless.